0: You are listening to Church of the Oaks podcast, where we exist to send disciple makers of Jesus by being disciple makers of Jesus. For more information about our church, such as service times, upcoming events, or how to join a group, please visit us at churchoftheoaks.com. Morning, church. Uh, My name is Brady. I'm a intern here at Oaks. I'm also a college student. I'm a senior at UA, uh, which means pretty much I have no idea what's going on, uh, and I've got less time than most people to figure it out. Uh, So I'm also a part of this thing. The reason I get to be up here, the reason Britain's given me the opportunity to speak, I'm a part of this thing that we have at Oaks called the preaching cohort. Uh, And The reason we have this is, Uh, I'm super thankful for it because it's something where we we talk all the time about actually believing in multiplication at at every level, Uh, talking about multiplying churches, church plants all across the southeast and college towns. But the thing is that those church plants require people that are going to be raised up, that know what it looks like to lead in the way that the Lord has called them, in the way that Britton and Alan and all of these people in our network have been faithful to do. Um, And so I'm thankful for them because they recognize that. They recognize that they can't do this. They can't accomplish the mission that we talk about every Sunday without laying themselves out. So I'm super thankful for them, the way that they pour into us on a weekly basis. It's the highlight of my week. But I was a little bit less thankful whenever they handed me this passage this morning because they asked me to cover about 480 years of biblical history, um, which is a lot. Uh, There's a ton of of background in this passage, there's a ton of things that we're gonna work through, Um, and none of you really want me to sit here for three hours doing that. Uh, I went through, I did the research, I read, it took me forever. Um, Like you said, I've been working on this for like a month at this point, because it's a lot of content, Uh, and that's one of the things with this whole story series, like we have to work through a lot of content. Uh, But in order for us all to actually have lunch today, we're gonna parachute into this story a little quicker. Uh, But I'm gonna give you context for where we're at. If you remember last week, we left off with Joseph in Egypt. He's in Egypt with his brothers, all of the sons of Jacob, the Israelites. Um, And in Genesis 24, as Joseph is about to die, he tells his brothers, he says, I'm about to die, but God will visit you. He's gonna bring you up out of this land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So God has left a promise and he tells them, like this is still the promise. I'm still planning to keep my word. Now when we pick up in Exodus one, you see it's been 400 years. Generation after generation has lived and died in Egypt. The Israelites are stuck there. What we pick up in, in Exodus one is that there's a new Pharaoh who doesn't remember Joseph. He doesn't know these people that have, have delivered his people from famine. The promises to Abraham, to Jacob, they all feel like distant distant memories to the Israelites. And the promise to Joseph in Genesis 50, it's starting to fade from their memory. It's their great, great grandparents at this point. This is generation after generation has lived and died in Egypt. You see, this new pharaoh, he doesn't care about the people, they delivered his country from famine a long time ago, but now they're, they're multiplying out. They're, they're being faithful to, to multiply, as they were told, um, but their population is growing and it's outpacing the Egyptians, and Pharaoh's scared. He's, he doesn't want them to, to outgrow him, to fight back against him. He doesn't want them to achieve independence, and so he begins to oppress them with hard labor. They're building bricks for Egypt to build their, their monuments, their temples, all these things. The Israelites are the slave force that drives Egypt. And for them, their, their hope is fading. Those promises are, are difficult for them to cling to. I think a lot of us know that feeling when God says all these things. He, he gives us these big promises. He tells us all these things in the Bible. And then life comes in and we start to wonder, is God really there? And if he is, what, what is taking him so long? You see, for them, generations have gone by and it doesn't seem like any progress has been made. We feel like we're at the end of our rope, and just like the Israelites, we can't hold on much longer. It's a lot of where we find the Israelites in Exodus 1. Sam I'm from Oklahoma. Um, I often have this conversation with people here. I like to say I'm from the South, and then everybody here throws a fit when I say I'm from the South. So I end up, I call it cowboy country, or the cowboy South. Um, I don't actually know much about cowboys. I grew up in a neighborhood with like neighbors right next to me. But I can pretend, because I say Oklahoma, and they're like, oh yeah, cowboys. Um, what I do know about cowboys uh, is they're famous for riding horses, and I liked reading about them. Uh, I liked growing up learning about them. But in order for them to ride a horse, uh, the horse didn't just come ready to ride. You see, they had to take it and break the horse so that they could ride it. A lot, of the way they would, a lot of the way that they would do that is they'd take this horse into deep water, deep sand. They'd let it buck, fight, squirm while they sat on its back, and that horse could do whatever it wanted to try and escape the burden. But eventually, sitting in that deep water, it would grow weary, and then the cowboy could lead it however it wants to. Its spirit was broken. It couldn't do anything. That's what's happening to the people of Israel here. They're in Egypt, and their spirits are starting to break as generation after generation has lived and died under the rule of Pharaohs. So it's into this enslavement to Egypt that Moses is born in Exodus 2. There's a really cool story of God as he delivers Moses from the moment he's born. His mom hides him. He ends up being raised by the daughter of Pharaoh. This is a miracle baby that, like, doesn't make any sense. The Lord has blessed him from the moment of his birth. He ends up being raised in the Egyptian court as, like, the grandkid of Pharaoh. And then he has this moment when he grows up, and he looks back, and he sees the the afflictions of his people, and he wants to be the rescuer. He wants to fix these burdens that are on them. And he ends up in exile because he's not the judge. He can't do that. So it's while he's in exile that God calls him. You See, God, at the end of chapter two in Exodus, he says that he has heard the cry of his people. See, their spirits are breaking. That that water is threatening to overwhelm them. They're near the end of their wells. And so in chapter three, verse six, he looks at Moses. He says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Moses hides his face, for he's afraid to look at God. Then the Lord says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of all of these tribes that you don't want me to try and name. See, this is what God is going to do about it. He's set this promise. He set it before Abraham. He's promised them the land of Canaan. He's going to accomplish his promise. And Moses has been equipped for this moment. Remember, like he's, his very existence as a miracle baby, he's come as a blessing. See, like Alan talked about a few weeks ago, he's been blessed to be a blessing. The thing is, he's not real interested in that. Um, he's got this wonderful distance between him and the crazy evil Pharaoh that's enslaving his people, trying to kill him. He's got a, a wife and a child in this land that he'd been exiled to. He's asking God, how, what, what if this happens? I don't, I don't think that should be me. I think I know that feeling. It's like, God, that's, that's great and all. I really love that plan, but I think you should pick someone else because that sounds like a lot of work to me, and I don't really want. He says, God, I know you're calling me. I know this is obedience, but I'm comfortable. I think in my own life, looking back, listening to God tends to be a lot harder when life is good and I'm comfortable. It's the same same it is for Moses. I think a lot of us are guilty of what he does. He, He takes his gifts that he's been given and he takes them off the table. He holds them back because they serve his purposes just fine and he's not real interested when the Lord is there calling him to be faithful with the gifts that he's been bestowed. See, God looks at him and he tells him, he says, I'm the Lord. I'm the one that delivered your forefathers. I have set this promise before your people. I've said that I'm going to deliver you, redeem you. Now, will you trust in that and go forward? So Moses, full of excuses, the Lord meets him at every excuse and says, no, like this is how I'm gonna provide. This is how I'm gonna show up. This is what I will do. I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to equip you where you're at. So the Lord works out even Moses' unwillingness to accomplish redemption of his people. The other thing we see in that passage in in the beginning of Exodus as he calls Moses. He sets in motion this two-part model of redemption. See, this is what redemption looks like across the Bible. He's going to use this same model all over the Old Testament, all over the New Testament. He's going to deliver out of bondage. He's going to bring into providence. Those are the two steps of redemption. So Moses, despite all his unwillingness, despite all of these excuses he has, he ends up having Aaron being the one that speaks for him, because popular interpretation says that Moses had a stutter or a speaking problem, and so God calls Aaron and says, He's going to be the one that talks for you. I just need you to be faithful. I need you to go. So Moses fights it for a long time, but eventually he goes forward and he tells he tells Pharaoh what God has said. Next to this five, he picks up. He says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Let my people go, that they may hold a feast in the wilderness. Pharaoh says in response, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Let Israel go. I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. See, Pharaoh knew a thing or two about gods. His gods, they sat on a wall, they were beautifully carved, beautifully drawn. The priest did a lot of talking. He told him what to build, what to do, what he needed to to pay for, what he needed to give offering to. They didn't really do anything. Those gods never, never showed up. They were these dead, lifeless things. So he wasn't risking much by spitting in the face of the god of this homeless slave people that are working for him, making bricks for his gods. See, the great gods of the great Egypt have never shown up. His gods have never come through, so why would this one? Pharaoh, in response to Moses telling him this, he chooses to increase the Israelite burdens, and even Moses begins to lose hope at this point. See, His people are under heavier afflictions than they've ever been. Their spirits are breaking. They have nothing left to give. And he just looks to God, and he starts to cry out, God, where are you? You said that you would equip me. You said that this was your plan. You promised us, God. You gave us your word. A lot of us know that feeling too, that moment of hopelessness, fighting with whether God is who he says he is, because he said that his plan was good. We're stuck in the middle of the, the brokenness, the heartache. It doesn't feel like it's gonna work out. It doesn't feel good. How could a good God let this happen? God, why, how could you do this? You promised. It's Moses cry in chapter five, verse 22. He says, God, why did you ever send me? It's only made it worse for my people. This was a waste. If we look back to last week, remember that God has a plan in the midst of evil to work it out for his purposes. To bring glory to himself. And that's exactly what he tells Moses. He looks to Moses and he tells him, hey, you know me. Now can you trust me? Trust me to do what I've said that I'm going to do. Trust me to fulfill my promises the same way that I've done for your forefathers. See, For us, I think that's the same comfort that we have in those moments. We can lean on the comfort of God's character in those moments of desperation. It's one of the favorite, my favorite parts about my Bible. I have a book that reminds me in the middle of that desperation, in the middle of that, that moment where I feel like this can't possibly be good, that I serve a God that shows up time and time again. I have a book where I see all of these huge promises that he's made, and he's come through every single time. Those moments of hopelessness, our comfort is his character. See, in my own life, I keep a journal of all those times that the Lord comes through in big ways personally for me. Because I have the Bible, and then I have that next to it, and I look at that, and I have this character journal that says, this is who I serve. This is the God that provides the God that shows up and delivers me in the moments that I really don't know how he's going to work it out. So I can look back on those times that God has showed up and I can trust him to to do it again. That's what he's going to tell Moses here. He says in, in chapter six, verse six, he says to Moses, to tell the people of Israel, tell these people that are broken in spirit, to remind them He's the Lord. He says, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. He's asking them to rely on his character, asking them to remember what it means when he says that he is the Lord, that he is the one that has showed up time and time again through the stories of their forefathers. That sounds great to us, but these people remember their spirits are broken. They're in deep water. They've got nothing left to give. It's been 400 years. They don't listen. They've forgotten what it means when he says that. They've forgotten who the Lord is. But God still moves because he is who he says he is and he's promised this. He's going to accomplish his redemption because he's promised this to the people of Israel. So Moses goes before Pharaoh and we see this cycle begin in Exodus 7 through 10 where Moses tells Pharaoh what the Lord has said. He rejects it and the Lord uses these plagues to demonstrate his authority. to Say, no, this is who I am. This is my character. I show up. I am all powerful. I am greater than anything you have here. See, but Pharaoh won't let go. He chooses not to. So God says, okay, we'll do it your way. He tightens Pharaoh's grasp until he has no other option but to let the people go. See, in Exodus 7 through 10, we see nine plagues that exhibit the Lord's authority over nature, over the dead gods of Egypt, over Pharaoh, and over all creation. He uses these to remind Israel what it means when he says that he is the Lord Consistently across those first nine plagues, we see the phrase that you may know that I am the Lord. It's the comfort to Israel to look at these signs, to remember who he is, and trust that his promise is coming. Pharaoh's heart is hardened to these signs. He's made his choice, but the Lord is going to use that, work it out for his glory. That's where we pick up in chapter 12. We're nine plagues in. The Lord is telling Moses, he's telling the people of Israel, this is the last one. After it, you will be delivered. See, now the people of Israel are ready for deliverance. They remember the character of God. The Lord tells them what this one is going to look like ahead of time. He tells them, hey, this time I'm not sending signs. I'm not sending wonders. I'm showing up in the midst of Egypt. In the midst of your enslavement to these people, I'm showing up. He's going to come, and with his perfection, it's going to come judgment for imperfection. See, he's good, he's righteous, he's holy and perfect. And when he shows up, all that that is counter to his being is judged. This isn't complete judgment because this is only their physical redemption from, from Egypt. But any judgment requires blood. That's the price. So even for Israel, blood is required. So as we pick chapter 12 up, we see a description of how Israel is supposed to handle the Lord's coming judgment. Verse 1, chapter 12, Exodus Lord says to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months, shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. If the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old, You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. See, again, Israel doesn't just avoid the judgment that's coming, but there's a necessary price because they, like the Egyptians, are imperfect whenever the Lord shows up. Somebody has to pay their price. Justice demands that. So in the Lord's mercy, he's inviting the Israelites to take up a substitute for their own blood. They owe a blood debt, but the lamb's blood it is covering them, it's protecting them, it's delivering them. See, but this lamb, it's not just any old lamb, it's not the one that gets stuck in the fence that you're trying to pawn off anyways, you're tired of taking care of, chasing it down. This is the best lamb. This lamb is without blemish. It's young, it's full of promise. It's not that annoying lamb. You see, this is the precious innocence of the flock. That's the lamb whose death will pay their price. But also remember, this isn't the fullness of their redemption. See, this lamb covers them for the judgment of Egypt, but the Passover lamb isn't the end. So we pick up in verse 7. He tells them how to handle this lamb. He says, then they shall take some of the blood, put it on the two doorposts and the lintel, which is the crossbeam above the door, and the houses in which they eat it. Shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. You shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. so the Lord gives them this step-by-step for how they're to handle the lamb because it's a stand-in for their blood. So it's gotta be handled with honor because if it's defiled, then it can only pay its own price. It can only be one of the beasts paying the price for the brokenness. See, they're also called to eat the lamb. They're called to, to eat it as a reminder to them of the price that was paid for their freedom. See, they were, they were bought at a price. It required blood. As they eat, they remember that. It's a reminder of them of deliverance and they'll go on to celebrate it yearly so they can look back on this moment when the lord showed up they're also called to paint their doorposts and the, the cross beam above their door with the blood so that the lord will be reminded that the debt was already paid see the lord knows that he didn't need a physical reminder there's an aspect of faith It's calling them not just to take the blood not just to sacrifice the lamb in, in quiet but to make it the banner of their household so the obedience here comes from the faith that the Lord is actually going to show up and rescue them. And their obedience costs something. It costs them a lamb. That's not only a meal for their family, but it's a way, a way to provide. There's, there's time lost in the, in the preparation for this, in the way that they're setting themselves apart from the people of Egypt. That price is nothing in comparison to what they're going to receive. So they're ready for deliverance. There's also a practical aspect of faith here in their preparation for for the night of the Passover. You see, you can claim you have faith all you want. You can paint your doorposts with blood. You can eat the lamb. But someone that really expects the Lord to deliver them, expects the Lord to show up exactly how he says he will, they have their shoes on, they got their belt fastened, their staff is in their hand, they're ready to walk out the door when the Lord shows up. They're ready to go because they actually believe the Lord is going to show up. The Lord walks through the memorial aspect of this day. See, he wants them to look back on this deliverance, to remember the way the Lord showed up, to remember the way the Lord kept his promise, to remember what it looks like when the Lord redeems. They look back and they know that they've been set apart for a reason. They can go forward with that knowledge that the Lord is still redeeming, he's still working through the lamb. Tells them in verse 26 of chapter 12, when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel while they were in Egypt, when he struck the Egyptians, but spared us our houses. they are gonna pass this tradition down so that future generations will remember his faithfulness. They'll remember the God that showed up and delivered them. And then it happens. I want you to imagine that moment. You're sitting there, waiting blood is dripping down your door your shoes are on your belts fastened holding your staff playing with it nerves on end it's midnight this is it either god shows up here or we die here our children die here we have nothing left to give we're fighting like that horse in deep water but we can't throw this rider off our back we need somebody to show up See, they're leaning on, on the promise of God's character. Those nine plagues, the way that he's exerted his power, exhibited this is who he is, there's got to be some doubt. See, like, my grandparents were born and died in slavery to Egypt. God, you've done all these things. You turned the Nile red. You have sent darkness, locusts. You've done all these things. You showed your power, but this one feels too big. God, I don't know if you can do this. I don't know if you can deliver us. This one feels beyond you. They know him. So even in their doubt, as they're wrestling with that in the night, they put their faith in him. They say, Lord, I, I trust you enough to walk in faith. I'm desperate for rescue. I'm at the end of my rope, I can't hold on any longer, treading in that deep water. But I have no idea how you're gonna free us from this bondage. It feels too big. Sure, they're teetering on the edge of those doubts, wrestling with them in the night. It's been dark for like five hours at this point. Just sitting there, waiting. They eat their meal and then they're waiting. Waiting. And on the horizon, a cry rings out. Just one and another. Rowing in agony and volume. See, house by house, the wages of sin are being paid. Verse 29, it says, at midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all of the Egyptians. There was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. He summoned Moses and Aaron by night. and He said, up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone. And bless me also. See, this is the cry of a father that sees the price of sin for the first time in the death of his child. It's agonizing. This hurts to read. He's crying at them. Get out. Bless me. But leave from my sight. You're the reminder that I was wrong in my disobedience has cost me dearly. See, just as God has said, so it's happened deliverance has happened, sacrifice, judgment. Remember what we established earlier about redemption. You see, it's twinfold. They've been delivered out. They still haven't been brought in. That's what a lot of the next few weeks in the Old Testament are going to be. We see the Lord continuing to keep his promise to prepare them and bring them into the land of Canaan. There's something special about this moment, though. See, this is the one that the Israelites are going to look back on time and time again, from the prophets to Paul, they're going to look back to the God of Egypt that showed up and brought them out. The God that in their brokenness, and their darkest hour, this is the God that showed up, delivered us. This is the day that he rescued us from slavery. Delivered us as his chosen people. See, God wasn't settling for physical freedom from the Egyptians, though. This wasn't the end of his plan. His people were still slaves, I didn't see any chains on any of you when you walked in here this morning, but if I look back on my own life, I see piles of baggage, bondage everywhere. Maybe your bondage this morning isn't physical, it's that pit of shame deep inside you for the decision you wish so desperately you could take back. It's that cycle of sin that you're stuck in, and much like the Israelites, you don't see a way out of, and this time it just feels too big that endless chase for fulfillment, to be, to be good enough, find your identity, to have value, so desperately crave. So you may not have physical chains, but the bondage wrapping around your heart is threatening to break your spirit the same way that those brick pits did for Israel. The hope that the Lord offers us this morning is that he knows that. So just like the Israelites, he knows his people. He knows you and your affliction and he hears your cry. See, the Israelites were in the same boat boat as you, freed from slavery but stuck in the bondage of their hearts. See, the plan was already in motion for a better rescue because God knew his people. He heard them. He wasn't finished in Egypt. This was not the end of his redemption. His plan was in motion from the garden. For all people, all sin, this greater evil, it needed a greater judgment. The Israelites had escaped Pharaoh, but there was nowhere to run from the brokenness inside of them. But in order to deliver them from this brokenness, this bondage, eating at their hearts, tearing away at them, the same way it does for for you and for me, someone had to pay the price. Justice demanded it, just as it did for the Passover lamb. You see, for all sin, a lamb of the flock wasn't going to cut it couldn't bear the weight of that, but one lamb of God could pay the price. One that was spotless, one that was sinless. That lamb could make things right. That lamb could deliver them. God could come in and rescue his people, restore what was broken in Eden. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is the new and better Passover lamb. As John calls him in in John 129, as he sees Jesus walking towards them, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus comes as a lamb, ready and willing to die as a sacrifice for his people. He's come to pay their price, take away their sin. See, his people, who year after year after year, through all of the, the brokenness that we see across Scripture, They've kept his Passover. They remember what redemption looks like. They have this entire testament to the character of their Savior, the way that he has saved and delivered them through a lamb. How could they forget what redemption looks like? You see, Jesus came to rescue his people by taking the form that they knew meant rescue a lamb of innocence. Like many of us, though, they were so busy looking for someone big enough, strong enough, mighty enough, good enough to break their chains that they missed the lamb that spilled his blood for their freedom. Jesus came as a sacrifice for all that would follow the steps of the Passover. This time, it's not about having the right shoes on. It's not about having the right cooking method. See, this lamb's already lived his life. He can't be defiled. It's about the heart, the same way it was for those people in Israel, it's about what those acts mean. See, his blood has been spilled on the cross. The Lamb has died for us. Just as the Israelites were called to do something with his blood, so we are with the blood spilled on our accord. See, Jesus has invited us not to paint our physical doorposts, but to paint the doorpost of our lives. To believe that our blood has been bought with his, that a price has been paid for our lives, that He He has given His life as a sacrifice for ours. This time, the rescue is more than just physical. It's an eternal spiritual rescue. See, his his sacrifice becomes the banner of our lives, not just our, our homes. See, He's also inviting us to do exactly as the Israelites did, to live our lives with sandals on and our belts fastened, confident that he's going to redeem us the way that he's told us, the way that he's promised, the way that we see across Scripture, redeeming all nations to himself. Promise from the very beginning to restore what was broken in Eden. Living our lives with our sandals on, our belts fastened, is that living with that confidence, but it's also leveraging our lives towards eternity, not clinging to the moments that we have here in this life. We're looking to eternity as if it's actually coming. It actually exists. With this conversation in my huddle the other day. Do you know how hard it is to convince a high schooler that something won't matter later? I was there. I mean, I was in high school not that long ago. I thought everything that happened was either the end of the world or, like, the greatest thing ever. I was never going to get past it. That was the peak. And now I don't have a clue what any of those moments were. I just know they were there. How many of you are the same way? You look back on high school and you're like, I don't really know what happened, but it was, it was a big deal at the time. Supposedly, the same thing happens for college. Um, I can kind of see how that's true, but I've got a little bit to go, I guess, before I can Look back on that. See, there was so much more to life that now it all seems small. In light of eternity, that's what this entire life looks like. got 70, 80, 90 years here. In light of eternity, that's a blink. So that was the, the question in our huddle is what would it look like for us to live a life that treated this life as the temporary thing that it is in light of eternity? to leverage our lives, to live them with shoes on, belts fastened, ready for the rescue. It's been 70, 80 years, confident that this is coming, sharing with others, loving on others, going forth, fulfilling the mission as we've been called, because we know that eternity is coming. We know that that rescue is coming. I want you to wrestle with that. Third thing he's doing this morning, he's inviting us to be rescued. See, that's what this is all about. Jesus came to rescue. He wants to rescue you out of your brokenness the same way that he rescued the Israelites through the Passover lamb. See, but this rescue, it's not over yet. There's two stages of redemption. There's a delivering out of and a bringing in to something greater. for The Israelites, that was Canaan, this land of milk and honey. Greater redemption also means a greater pasture. It's not the land of Canaan this time. It's an eternity with our Lord and Savior. So God is seeking you out. He wants to deliver you from the bondage of your heart, inviting you to take the freedom that Jesus died for, that his blood is there to take. He wants to redeem you, break the chains that hold you captive, tear at your heart. The question for you this morning is, will you let him have those chains? Will you look at that blood? Will you make it the banner See, the other thing is that a better redemption, this better rescue plan, it also calls for better judgment. We struggle with this part. It's hard. You know, I kind of breezed over it a second ago when it came to the children of Egypt dying. See, that hurts, we don't like to read that. I don't know a lot of people that look back to this story as their favorite because something about that feels a little uneasy. We don't like it. See, we don't want to believe that they actually deserve to die, that that was actually justice. Because doing that, we have to believe that the actual wage of sin is death. We don't want to reckon with the fact that we all deserve to die. That's justice. See, that's what we've earned. The Passover wasn't vengeance. It was justice. God's glory, his goodness, his perfection could not exist next to broken, evil, sinful people without enacting justice. Justice. Out of his goodness, justice came because he is perfect and holy and good. A better judgment is the same justice. So as the band comes this morning, I want you to hear that God is inviting us into eternity with him. See, but that better pasture that he's calling us into, it only holds his sheep. So just as it was in Egypt, Those that aren't covered by the lamb, they're not punished vindictively. That's not what this is about. We don't serve a vindictive, vengeful God. We serve one that's loving. He's come to be with his people. But when he shows up, you either know the lamb, covered by the lamb. The lamb's blood has paid your price. He's given you out of his mercy, out of his love, this opportunity. Or You don't know the lamb. You see, not knowing the lamb that paid your price means paying it yourself. That's what judgment looks like. That's justice. So My invitation for you this morning is that the blood that Jesus spilled on the cross, in the same way that the blood of the Passover lamb, it's there. It's waiting. What will you do with it? Will it be the banner of your life? Will you leverage your life with a faith that his rescue plan that is already in motion is going to be completed? Generation after generation does not change the faithfulness of the Lord. He's good. He's shown up time and time again. And we can lean on a book that has shown he's got a perfect track record. There's an ease to that. There's a comfort to that. We have the comfort of his character to lean on in those moments. Finally, will you allow him to come in to rescue you? from the deep water and the deep sand, whatever it is threatening to overwhelm you, those chains ripping at your heart, will you let him rescue you the way that he's promised? So we have our next steps team in the back, and I want to encourage you this morning that they're, they're there not just for salvation questions, not just for baptism questions. They're there to, to pray with you, to spend time as we wrestle with things like this, wrestling with living our lives, leverage towards eternity, what does that look like for you practically? That's a question you can go back there and ask them, talk with them, pray with them. They're there for you. I know I've gone back many a time just to, just to sit there and have a conversation about what this actually looks like. Apply this to my life. So I'd encourage you in a moment as we pray and you, you wrestle with these things, consider that. They're there to, to talk through things, to pray with you. I also want you to, to remember that the, the blood is there. Waiting. What are you going to do with that? If you've already made that the banner of your lives, what does it look like to leverage your life towards eternity? To recognize that these 80, 90 years that you have here are not the end. They're a glimpse of what eternity is going to be like in a better pasture. you bow your heads with me this morning? Dear Lord, we thank you. Thank you for. The sacrifice that you paid on the cross. Thank you for this this perfect redemption plan that you have that is already in motion to save us from the brokenness inside of us, Lord. Lord. That you've been working out since the beginning from the garden, Lord, that you've had this promise that you are going to come in to redeem your people. God, we thank you for that. Thank you for the sacrifice of the cross. Lord, this morning... Pray for the people in this room, Lord, that they would remember the blood that you spilled, that they would look at that, they would look at their lives, they would look at what it would mean to paint their lives with that blood, to live that as the banner of their lives. So pray for those in this room that are believers. Lord, what would it look like for them to live lives leveraged towards eternity, to live lives that looked at today as a temporary thing, as fleeting, Lives that looked at eternity as a promise is coming. It's coming true. I pray that they would open their hands, let go of the things that are so easy for us to hold to in this life because ultimately it's all worth it for your kingdom. I invite you to wrestle with these things. I pray all this in your name thanks for listening to this week's podcast for more sermons like this you can give us a follow at Spotify or Apple Music if you want more information about our church you can check us out at churchattheoaks.com church, you are sent